It's fun fact. Where we have all <laughs> the facts you can fun. All the facts you can fun. All the funs you can fact. All the, mm. On fun fact. Mm. Brought mm. to you by facts. Back to my facts. But not facts.com because I cannot. Not facts.com. <laughs> WikiHow. It's our oh, yeah. primary sponsor. I think everyone has kind of picked that up. If we wouldn't that be amazing? That would be amazing. <laughs> I would pay them to sponsor us. Yeah. Not very much, but you would pay them to sponsor I'd give, us. I'd pay them twenty five dollars to sponsor us. To sponsor us. Yeah, I don't think that's how <laughs> they would do a poor illustration for it. Okay, because I don't think that's how sponsors I'm not sure you know how sponsorships work. It'd be it would be an innovate sponsorship innovation. Yeah, you're definitely innovative. Go around to different businesses that we find <laughs> funny. Yeah, I think this is called a pyramid scheme. Uh-huh. And then we pay them system. we pay them $25, but if they recruit other businesses mm-hmm. that we also find funny mm. to sponsor us, then we pay kickback. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. So then they get some of the money. It's like mm-hmm. a percentage system that flows yeah. and there's there's re- there's tiered rewards. Yeah, things. which might not seem very profitable to you, but I have an example of somebody who I'm going to bring up on stage now who is making $300,000 <laughs> a year from this scheme. From the comfort of his own home. Working 10 hours a week. Working 10 hours a month. Yeah, 10 hours a year. <laughs> 10 hours a year. <laughs> uh, so I have a couple facts this Ooh. time. Um, that, uh, I've come across in my travels oh. <laughs> on the internet that okay, I, I was like, I wanna, where are you going? I'm yeah. No, that now. I physically went to, well, the first one is uh, back to space. Cause we had so much fun last time. I like space. In particular, I, I've gotten on a bit of a thing over the last month or two about, uh, space travel and, uh, like eventually maybe going to Mars one day, not myself, probably leave that to other people, but interesting, the idea of a challenging thing that, you know, as a, um, species trying to accomplish that and then what are all the barriers to that and is there even any point in doing that because like (laughs) it's obviously (laughs) a lot of resources right but it's kind of interesting and one of the things that came up in that is like uh of one of the many 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 challenges of of going out in longer space journeys uh is oxygen because you need kind of pretty reliable supply in order to not you know die right and i came across in that research uh i was learning about the iss uh, the International Space Station, and I learned a fun fact about it. Okay. So, fun fact: the ISS makes oxygen from pee. Okay. Now, when you say that, do you mean are you are you just being like quirky and saying pee instead of peas? Like, because because we have we have pea milk in my house, uh-huh. and we had a discussion of pea mayo at one point. Right, but pea milk is the primary kind of milk that my wife now buys. And pea protein, yeah, yeah, and it is fine, but it is a little bit weird to be like, I'm going to go get the pea milk, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to pour I'm the gonna, pea milk into a I'm gonna bowl put of the, cereal. Yeah, because it seems a little gross milk. to be calling it that. Yeah, well, right. if you think that's gross, <laughs> you should learn about. <laughs> This is not that kind of pee. This is not that kind of pee. And the hierarchy of peas you want to drink, this is lower than hey, you don't know peas me. from a pot. Well, I don't know. You make your own, I'll tell you about this, how this all works, and you decide, Yeah, I'll let you do know. I want to drink the, the pea milk, or do I want to drink the, the pea. pea water from, water. The or pea air juice. oxygen, the pea oxygen. Ooh, so, uh-huh. 
Here's how it goes. So the preferred approach, because um, on the uh, not surprisingly, in a situation like the ISS, uh, astronauts in space for long periods of time, weeks, months, that you will have multiple ways to get oxygen because if one system fails, it's extreme emergency, and so you need some backups. But the preferred default way is electrolysis. So that's basically okay. electricity plus water makes oxygen and hydrogen. Yeah, so you're subtracting the the h wait you're subtracting the you break two? the h2 separate yeah. you or take h and then you get o2s and there's it's you break a, that into two different o's and then you're yeah you physically grab the o's and you're like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you gotta be very strong to be an astronaut yeah um, but electrolysis yeah. pretty simple um chemical reaction basically at its core is electricity plus water makes uh air or this makes, makes sense to me this makes a lot of sense. So but what if you don't have any water? Well, what if you don't have any water? Like if you were in a, you know, some sort of location where water was relatively scarce, like right. space. Well, space. where does water come from? So they, when, this, <laughs> where, where, where does that, water come from? Actually, Ellie asked me when that two, yesterday or they before. When two molecules love each other very much, yeah. Alan, um, they, they produce water. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're on a space station, where do you get water? Well, spy ships, when they come, they will often bring some um, uh, compressed uh, or not compressed. You can't compress water. They'll bring some uh, water, can, canistered water uh yeah. but not enough that Dasani. yeah they bring it in the in the like the costco packs yeah. wrapped up <laughs> that's right. but that's really just to like kind of replace lost uh water you have to be more a lot more efficient you than have to hydrate flying. more in space you uh do you have to hydrate more or maybe hydrate less because you're not getting sun on i don't know not quite sure exactly on your hydration well, needs, let's put a pin in that but one. it's important for you to have water and you need water for things like not dying and so they uh, are tried to be very efficient also it's extremely expensive to launch things into space water is very heavy so they want to be as efficient as possible with the water that is up there so uh supply ships can bring some water uh, but they get the, uh, the water reclamation primarily from two things one is uh oh i see where this is going <laughs> exhaled vapor uh out of your breath uh what goes into How do they the collect air. that uh they well in like dehumidifier basically like same wow. similar principle right so over a certain humidity level it's like pulling uh the water vapor out of the air recondensing it recondensing it into, into condensation yeah. water so that's great so you get some of the water back out but yeah. apparently i have not visited the international space station but according to what i was reading the water that comes from that exhaled air vapor air and then condensed back into water not really the, the astronauts preferred drinking water they mm. they do not really you know they only drink it when they need to they prefer to use that uh water to make air with through electrolysis because it's a little bit uh does it little, taste bad is that what? yeah it tastes bad it's it's not uh. like it's not quite as it's not quite as Do they not have filters they have lots of filters and purifiers and stuff like that but like okay. we're very humans are very very good at detecting minute things in water and mm. you know you just taste some water sometimes it just tastes kind of like blood tastes wrong yeah yeah not like it's like obviously they would make sure it's not dangerous like i'm sure they boil it or whatever they do right. but right, right, right. uh or like make sure it's it's, they're not getting sick from any of it, but it's like I would hope not. when they can, they're going to not drink that water, apparently, um, but they can use it to make air. Um, but the uh, other way that they get a water is from urine 
and specifically reprocessing it to reclaim the water back out of it. In theory, they can reclaim 85% of it, but in practice, apparently they get about 70%. And so you can imagine like diminishing returns. Any given water is drank like multiple times. Yeah. So, okay. So they, 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 that, does that basically then gate how long they can be up there? Like if you're getting, cause you're going to, yeah. Right. Cause you're going to bring X amount of water and then you know that you're going to get X amount from condensation and you know, you're going to get X amount from urine. That's going to mean that you can probably actually pretty carefully guess or, or not guess chart out like how long, yeah, they I guess can, they, you know, I'm sure yeah. they do, but they like, they, I'm sure they chart it on a regular basis, but they can also project out probably pretty accurately how, how they're going to be using water. And like when they're talking to ground control about, okay, when, when is the next supply ship coming up? What do we have? What do we need? And then it's like, oh, okay, we might need this amount. We're getting, you know, even though we have all these processes trying to reclaim and be as efficient as possible, we're getting a little bit low on oxygen or getting a little bit low on clean water. And so they'll send some of those up. But the majority, uh, the vast majority is my understanding of the water and air that they're and like the the air that they get primarily comes from electrolyzing water. Uh, mm. And the water is mostly reclaimed from the air and from uh, from the pee. And so the fun fact that the ISS makes oxygen from pee. Um, that's kind of where that comes from. But then I started, so any questions on that before I go into, well, what if they don't have any pee to make oxygen out of? No, I am curious about that, but did you see this? Can I introduce? So I, I was trying to find out, uh, about the hydration thing. Yeah. And so I looked up, I looked it up and I, but I ended up at a different article about this pee issue. Okay. Did you see that 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 the U.S. side and the Russian side have very different opinions on this? Oh yeah, I I came across a number in my ISS research, and I think this little thread I'll keep pulling on. But there's definitely interesting because it's a joint project in between two space agencies that have a long history of operating in very different ways. In ways that is kind of famous that like the Russians use a pencil and you know right. the U.S. overcomplicate things. But then like the U.S. stuff. Is you know my sense they try to be very diplomatic about it, but the U.S. stuff is more reliable and nicer for the astronauts and more cushy, quote unquote. Probably the the Russian astronauts would say. But then all this stuff is kind of cobbled together, and the astronauts from the different space agencies are all like going in between the different modules, which some have different responsibilities. So, um, yeah. So are you are you getting at Russian way to make air? No. So so what I'm talking about is that the the russian astronauts do not drink their own urine and so what ends up happening is <laughs> they give their urine to the us astronauts wow so there this is a quote from lane carter who at least as of 2015 managed the iss water system for nasa they said, we collect it in bags, and then the crew hauls it over to the U.S. side. We don't do 100% of the Russian urine. It depends on our time availability. And then this person also said, it tastes like bottled water as long as you can psychologically get past the point that it's recycled urine. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my point is that the, the title of this article 
in the Washington Post, which I will put in the show notes, is why American astronauts drink Russian urine. <laughs> so, like, like from what think, I could read, apparently it's the preferred drink. Like, it tastes better than the air extracted. Yeah, water. they mentioned they mentioned that uh, that 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 it is also condensate that comes out of the air. But like, I wonder if like they do you think they can tell the difference between the Russian and the American urine? <laughs> wow, well, uh, I'm like just a, saying that that idea is very funny to me. So Russian urine, yeah, throwing that in the show notes for you. <laughs> there's so I don't know. There's some sort of pure poetry. I don't know. the The whole endeavor of going into space is so far fetched on its face. Yeah, it's so crazy. The fact that they can make any of this stuff work in a reliable way that they can stay up there for months is amazing, and it is not surprising. I'm the just. Like this thing about drinking reconstituted or reclaimed urine is not even probably the most ridiculous. No, but I will recommend to people who want some joy in their life, especially right now, just Google astronauts and water because you will get the the headlines of these articles are just incredible. I I just see one now that says astronauts have a new, better way to drink their own pee and perspiration. <laughs> so it's just like it's, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. I love you so much, Ellen, for bringing us this wonderful fact. But you said that there was more. Yeah. So my thread. So like to me, the drinking their own pee thing, like. I wasn't really surprised by that, although it is it's entertaining. But then the when it came to breathing the pee, that's when I was like, "Oh, that's wait, wait, hold on, pee. breathing the pee." Well, they, not directly, but they they make they turn the pee into water, and then they turn the water into oh, air. because they turn some of the pee into air. Yes. So now they're breathing pee air. They're breathing pee air, um, and that Good is great. Grief. Apparently, yeah. Um, oh, that they like that. Well, I mean, air is like one nice thing, like compared to the water apparently the oxygen like once you have oxygen it's oxygen so apparently it's maybe more pure than i'm mm. getting a little bit outside of my depth on yeah um, if anyone out there in fun factor land knows more about this than we do which as you can tell from listening to at least me is not that hard i think alan knows a lot more than me but let us know because we want to know more yes although i will say just uh in case anyone is like oh, oh i here's a relevant uh side fact apparently the space station is pretty smelly yeah <laughs> yeah you, you'll be shocked given all these i feel like there's a lot of reasons why that would be true yeah i think yeah there's a lot of reasons it would be true but apparently uh some of it is just like it's kind of hard to clean all the surfaces of everything um and there's like you know forms of bacteria that like will grow there that don't grow in other places it's not natural ecosystem oh, or whatever so like apparently yeah. part of the like mirror space station which was the original like russian space station that has since right. been decommissioned apparently right. it was really smelly and like the ISS is much nicer in that regard, or at least. Well, I would also imagine regionally. that the, the more modern, the uh, I know they build the ISS out of these like different units, right? It's like yeah. these like pods almost that they connect. I imagine that they're getting better at sort of materials that don't collect as much as possible, don't collect odor or stains or whatever. But I mean, any video you've ever seen of astronauts doing anything in space leads me to believe there is a lot of spillage well yeah there's just like a, droplets of anything just go in every direction just going and like everywhere. how do you contain that absolutely everywhere and they i don't think there's been a time when no one's been on there you can't like you know do some kind of you know crazy heat clean or something like that because there's first of all i don't even know if that would damage everything but also there's people there so the stuff is really sensitive like apparently one thing i was surprised by researching like air on the space station is that they have the same air pressure as at sea level which uh is 
a bit huh. more like quote unquote work. It's a little bit more effort to get it that high pressure than like in airplanes. We don't even have sea level air pressure. But apparently, wow. the reason they bother doing that is that the equipment, some of the equipment, is so sensitive that getting it as close as possible to like quote unquote neutral as it was designed at home is worth the extra effort of getting sea level uh, like air pressure inside the. Station. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's interesting. And I would, it's one of those things, a lot of this stuff with space, because I, I don't know much about it, is one of those things where everything you're saying, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, I, that makes sense. Yeah, but I plausible. would never have thought of it ever. One of the things as I've been reading about, like the space station and like thinking and reading about the, which, because to me, the space station is, is interesting as like a, if we're going to like stay on Mars or like even visit Mars and come back, then. Yeah that learning is like more relevant in terms of like how do people survive for long periods in space which is like kind of the harder part of than getting there like getting to mars is interesting and there's a whole bunch of interesting engineering required to do that but that's all mostly solved i think like there isn't so like do you think that the likelihood would be that we would build a base on mars or do you think the likelihood would be that, would, that we would try to like terraform or geoform whatever it is mars to make it a habitable place well, terraforming is like such a slow slow such a resource intensive thing mm. that it's like generations centuries thing that like okay maybe to say it would happen one day is like i mean on an infinite time scale like probably <laughs> it would be attempted for sure i yeah go at that far to say at some at some point eventually someone will attempt it if we don't you know nuclearize ourselves sure. at some point in the meantime but the getting to mars thing and then getting back <laughs> it's a good one you know what the kind of things that people would do um yeah but the the getting to Mars and getting back is kind of tricky, um, and it's uh, the way the timings and everything work. It's uh, my understanding is that it's easier if you go to Mars and you stay there for a while, and then you come back when the timing of the planets is more amenable. Okay, rather than just like doing the Apollo, like go there for a few hours and then come back. You know, interesting. Um, so, I'm not sure I understand, but interesting. Well, the planets are all orbiting the sun at different... Oh, you mean literally throughout the year in their orbit? Yeah. No. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's like a time when it's more habitable. It's not like great, but it's better. Yeah, well, there's the habitability is one thing, but they would probably land near the pole where like the habitability is like kind of pretty stable based on gotcha. the time of day or whatever. But the, the thing that changes throughout the year is the distance in between Mars and Earth. Oh, well, that makes sense. Because if you can go back and forth, it's helpful for them to be closer. Sure. Uh, less, you know, work. Yeah. Um, so that, all that is to say is just that if you're going to go to Mars, you, there's some benefits to staying for a while. And once you're staying for a while, then there's like, you know, it's fairly difficult to get there. Then it's like, maybe let's have a, people try staying there for like a fair while uh, instead of just like, you know, months. Or, um, and that's where a lot of the things that they're learning in on the space station are helpful in terms of like, yeah, it's for the Apollo mission to like go to the moon and then come back a few days later. There's certain things that are the difficult parts, but you can just be like, okay, we need air. Well, we'll just bring the air. Right. But if you're up there all the time, that's not going to work. Yeah. We need a machine that makes air. And then we also need to understand all the failure modes for that machine and we need to be able to repair. And that's a lot of the like challenges, not just like all this stuff about the space station, when you read about challenges and complications, they're almost all complicated, very unique equipment failed in an unexpected way. Mm. And then how do they deal with that in space? Mm. Yeah. Um, and then if you're on the space station, maybe you can just wait until the next supply 
run. But if you're on Mars, then you can't do that even. So that's kind of something that's fascinating to me. So on the theme of things failing, you have your preferred way to get air, which is this electrolysis, make it out of water. Uh, the backup approach is to uh, use the pressurized oxygen that they can send up uh, in supply runs, which they keep like as a reserve if they need it. But they try not to use that, obviously, because it's kind of precious. But then there's a backup backup way to get you gotta have a backup backup gotta have a backup backup but to me i find it entertaining that there's a backup backup that like you're in space and you need to resort something to something that is two levels worse than breathing your own pee (laughs) what well breathing your own pee is like the preferred thing and then worse than that is like using this the precious stored oxygen and then worse than that the thing that they do if they only have to do it is what they call solid fuel oxygen oxygen generation okay and so these are basically Russian oxygen torches okay. that burn at 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, okay. burning sodium chlorate and iron to make oxygen okay. and stuff. Why is this worse? Well, because then you're in an enclosed space station with fiery <laughs> torches <laughs> burning at 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, I uh, see. you know, and then breathing that. Um, and so, like... There have not been very many instances of fires in space, but my understanding is the majority <laughs> of them have been caused by these things. Oh my god. That does sound pretty awful. But apparently like in in like the Russian spacefaring like era, um they that was like their go-to way to get air was to burn these things. Burn it. Yeah. Do it. I don't yeah. normally even be fine. And and then one time one of them just like exploded and there was like molten uh because it's like iron or ferric something something in there so there's like molten iron <laughs> floating around okay not funny at the time but now you know i'm sure they all but now absolutely hilarious yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone survived so <laughs> wait how do you, i have so many unanswered questions here like how does it burn in an environment with no oxygen or well, it's just using up the oxygen they already... Because the point here is to create oxygen, The point right? is to create oxygen. So if you're, you're not burning it in an environment oxygen, that is completely missing oxygen. Right, but if you're using the oxygen that's there to make oxygen, that seems like a... Uh, I mean, I guess you must be making more oxygen than you're using to make it, but doesn't that seem to violate the laws of thermodynamics? And well, I mean, there's oxygen in the solid fuel parts. Oh, it's just, okay, that's right. So just extra- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's just solid getting it things. Out. There's like a salt... Um, yeah. Okay. And uh, that makes sense. You're using ferric. some oxygen to get out the oxygen of the thing that has more oxygen in it. I don't even know if it, I might, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if these things would work in a, in a oxygenless environment. I mean, again, so I'm okay. I want to know more about that because like, let's put a pin in that one for future investigation because like, how does it burn without oxygen? Well, okay. Like burn maybe is not, I'm not a chemist. Maybe the technically the term is not burn, but <laughs> it's a like chemical lithium perchlorate is the stuff that's in it. So like lithium, okay. chlorine, and oxygen. Okay. Right. Um, and so lithium perchlorate has oxygen in it, and you can trigger a chemical reaction where it will turn that into heat and mm-hmm. oxygen and byproduct. Okay. Okay. And so yeah. it's okay. burning. It's in the presence of oxygen. It's just the oxygen is in the solid thing. Right. Instead of in the air around you. Right. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so great invention. 
if you need air, you're like, yep, I'll definitely yeah, light up care. one of these. Yeah, you don't care at that point. Each one there it was rated for a certain number of person, 6.5 person hours of oxygen per kilogram of this stuff. Right. Person hours of oxygen. Yeah, per kilogram. Oh, I person hours of oxygen. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so one person can breathe this for six hours. Six hours. It's yeah. a lot of danger for six hours. Uh, well, I mean, having no oxygen is a higher danger. <laughs> so <laughs> pick your danger. <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. And like, the these things are you like, need. you know, it's not like they're just like this giant flame ball that's like throwing molten lava all over the place were, normally. Though. Like that is <laughs> rare. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So you'll be surprised to learn that they're like, will. you know, when our options are uh, P air or uh, flaming torch air. P air looks, starts to look better and better. P air looks better, but they're thinking, hey, can we find out a way to maybe make some of the oxygen from plants? Oh, yeah. Why don't they just send some plants up there? Supposedly, one of the challenges is they just would need way more space. Like, okay, I mean, that does make space, sense. But like in station space. Yeah, but it might be worth it. it plants don't super, do super well when you put them like outside yeah. stations. So. Seems like it would be worth it, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to be on Mars for, you know, hundreds of days. Right. Um, again, this is this is a cost per. Right. It's like a what's the cost compared to the time you're getting? Because on the International Space Station, it's presumably just not worth it. Yeah, I don't have a great understanding of, in the scheme of things, how much money it would cost. Like, how much money are they spending on this air generation stuff? Because it's definitely a fair amount of their time and attention. But, but like, the cost of launching things into space is so expensive that launching, and also don't have a good sense of, and maybe it's an interesting, like, follow-up fact, is, like, how many plants would they need to make enough oxygen for six people? Because, right. like, yeah. if you imagine, like, just totally off the top of your head, you're like, you know, maybe like one mature tree would make enough, enough oxygen for an adult. Then it turns out you need a forest and we're like, oh, yeah. Or even okay. just like six full mature trees. Like imagine six, like 40, <laughs> 50 fit trees. It's like, that's like more space than the whole station, right? Sure. But I will say that would be a much nicer station to be on. It would definitely be good for the space tourism that is increasingly funding yeah. future yeah. stuff. So it would be much, much nicer. To but be then there. you would need more trees because then the tourists are coming. So I feel like even, I don't know. I feel like whenever you watch like, you know, like anime or something like that but you know like a permanent kind of space station vibe type thing uh, trees like some kind of like you know indoor arboretum mm-hmm. definitely a big win yeah for sure yeah i'll uh encourage them to do that yeah could you let them know yeah now that you're i mean now that we're i mean we're kind of a big deal now that we're experts so. yeah exactly <laughs> Call up NASA and be like, now that I'm an expert. From this Wikipedia research I've been doing. Hours of Wikipedia research. Um, So I'll send you a link to this. uh, This is what I'm sending you. uh, Image, which I'll put in the show notes, of the cycle of the different on the station. Oh, yeah. Of how oxygen and waste and things getting That is a confusing chart. Um, And there's lots of still going on. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Breathe in pee. I'm trying to figure out... How to do a segue here. You didn't, do you don't have a pee breathing related fact <laughs> available? Well, I, people, there are people breathed in the time period in, of my fact as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So <laughs> smooth segue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So here mm-hmm. we go. Fun fact. There are more pyramids in Sudan than there are in Egypt. What? Yeah. And by like a lot. Oh, 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. Like, like getting an exact number was a little bit tricky because they keep finding more of them, but probably at least double. This is, is this like that they're finding them because like they're mostly buried under the sand and then the desert shifts or they're looking. That's right. Yeah. And we'll, there'll be a very easy explanation of why it's harder to find them, but let's talk a little bit about what we have here. So, so like just like getting everyone on the same page geographically, Sudan being the country south of Egypt. Sudan is directly south of Egypt. So if you go up the Nile far enough, you will eventually get from Egypt to Sudan. That's correct. They are the Southern, they share a Southern border with Egypt. And so in ancient times in in what you might call pyramid times Mm -hmm. that's what they called them at the time that's what they called them at the time yeah the area was called nubia Mm. so as a result the pyramids are called the nubian pyramids all of them or the sudanese ones the sudanese ones right the area of modern day northern sudan was called nubia so the nubian pyramids were built by the rulers of the ancient kushite kingdoms okay and those were in nubia at the time, and they were built roughly during the time period of 800 BCE to 100 CE. Okay, so that was, this was happening like, quote unquote, relatively recently in the scheme of ancient Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Like to put that in context, some of the, you know, like the Great Pyramid of Giza was built like a lot, lot, lot longer ago than that. That was built in like the 2580s. So BCE. more than twice as long ago. Right. So like, it's it this is much 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 more recent so the of the the three nubian kingdoms there the first one was very uh, local in terms of its architecture and culture and stuff like that but the second two which were centered on the cities of napata and meroe and i'm if anyone knows that i'm pronouncing these wrong please let me know i would love to learn i tried to read the ipa or whatever on wikipedia but you know my mileage definitely can vary but so they were, they were, these last two were heavily influenced by Egyptian culture hmm. and largely because they border on Southern Egypt, the Kushite kingdoms were sort of competitors of Egypt. And at times when the Nubians were stronger, they, and the Kushites were stronger, they actually even conquered Egypt. Ah. So the 25th dynasty of the pharaohs of Egypt was entirely Kushite pharaohs. Hmm. And, and then eventually it was invaded by Assyria. But the idea is here, Egypt would conquer them. They'd conquer Egypt. I mean, you know, neighboring country, neighboring region kind of things. So as a result of being so inspired by Egyptian culture, they started to build, they eventually started to build their own pyramids. Now, similarly to Egypt, the ones in Sudan were built primarily as burial chambers for kings, a lot of queens, which is cool, and also rich citizens who just could afford them, Ah. which may have also been true in Egypt. I'm not sure. I thought, I I think it's, I, I hadn't heard that before. So that was kind of interesting. But so why 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 do we not know about them as much or why do we not know how many there are? It's because they're much smaller. Oh, interesting. So there are a lot more of them. More but they're boutique pyramids. Much, much smaller. Yeah. So they're usually only between about 20 and 100 feet high. Okay. Which so a decent size. Is still a, a decent size. But a 20 is... A 20 is pretty small. And Giza is like 480 feet high. Right. In, and it's historically. like volumetric. So like it's way more than... Right. And so that's the other thing. So in addition to being not that tall, they also had pretty small foundations, like 26 Mm. foot square. Mm -hmm. And they usually had a temple structure at the base that is a totally different shape than the pyramids that you might be thinking of or the, or, and I'll send you a link so you can see what those looked like. If you scroll down a little bit on that link, you'll see like a reconstruct they've reconstructed some in the area of some of the old ones and you can see kind of oh, what they okay. look like yeah and so they have the typical pyramid shape 
but they're much, but just like if it was shrunk down and at a much steeper angle. Yeah, they're pointier. They're much pointier. And then they have kind of this almost like H uh, letter sticking out in the front, which apparently was a, were temples. Hmm. Hmm. So they, they were plundered mostly in ancient times, but we do know that the occupants were, were mummified just like in Egyptian pyramids. And we know that they were buried with like their worldly possessions, like jewelry and stuff. And we also know based on what was found in some of the pyramids that they, that they had extensive trade with both the Egyptian civilizations, but also as far away as the Hellenistic Greek oh, civilizations, yeah. which is pretty cool. Unfortunately, in the 1830s, there was an Italian soldier who joined the Egyptian army and participated in the Egyptian con- conquest of Sudan in that era, which is an awful story for a, potentially a later date, but it's it's not a nice story. And after the conquest, he stuck around in Sudan to do some quote-unquote treasure hunting. Sure. He said he was going to find treasure or return home penniless. But his style of hunting involved demolishing the pyramids. Oh, man. Many of whom were in good condition. And he's just demolishing them to see if there's anything inside? or Yeah, he would like blow off the tops of them with explosives to see if there was anything inside. Uh, rather than digging them up because it was less work. Right. And who cares so, about yeah, history? Exactly. He did end up finding treasure. Uh. He headed back to Italy with it. And then he tried to sell the treasure, but the Europeans of that time were unwilling to believe that such high-quality jewelry could have been made in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, okay. So he had a lot of trouble selling it, but eventually they sold in Germany. So part of it was purchased by Ludwig I of Bavaria and is now in the State Museum of Egyptian Art in Munich, and the rest was purchased by some other people and is now in the Egyptian Museum of Berlin. And, you know, definitely a part of the history of places not in Europe having their stuff taken by Europeans back to European museums and now it being there instead of in the places that it was from. But uh, luckily he did not find all of the pyramids and more are still being discovered even today. Again, because they're so much smaller, it's much easier for, you know, at 20 feet, you know, sand dunes can just cover it. Oh yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that apparently at the time that they were building them, it wasn't a desert. Oh, like there's a lot of evidence that it was actually a pretty lush, um, lush landscape. Well, I mean, I guess like the Nile, I mean, obviously over thousands of years has changed and been dammed and, you know, right. desertification and all these sort of things. So I, I'm, I get, now that I think about it, like I think of the, where Egyptian civilization was, um, yeah. as being like in the desert, but like, was that area as desert as it is now? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think it was. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's in, in very recent times, it's it's quite hard to do any more archeological study of some of these sites because they're now under 250 feet of water at the bottom of a lake. Oh (laughs) yes. Cause they flooded for the, that dam. Yeah. Right. So there's a man-made lake, 500 square miles, and it is definitely some of the area where there would likely be more pyramids is, is now underneath the lake. The, yeah, the Aswan Dam. But the there is still a bunch of this is still visitable. And prior to kind of the modern Sudanese civil war, the, the, there was actually quite a bit of tourism to the area. And hopefully that will come back. I'm looking at the like Google Maps view of Egypt and like all the way down, still today, all the way down the Nile, uh, you have this basically strip of like green 
farming sort of communities, it looks like, just yeah. for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles all, all the way down. Yeah. And then you yeah, get yeah. to this giant big-ass lake that they <laughs> plopped they down. Built, yeah. And then, of course, they put it at the very end of Egypt, and then <laughs> Sudan gets, like, I guess the water flows from Sudan to Egypt, but... Still. Yeah, but it's it's it. I think you can only get to Sudan these days from Egypt by boat, right? Uh, really? Well, at least for a while. I don't know if it's still true, but for a while there there were no land routes were open. Now I don't know if that's still true. That that was true, twenty years ago. I don't know if it's still true. Uh, so I shouldn't say that. But I know for a while it was definitely true. Yeah, on Google Maps it looks like you would get to the south of Egypt and then you would take a boat across the that lake that they made and then right. a little bit more egyptian road and then there would be a land border but yeah that that's right apparently you i'm seeing some articles that saying that that maybe there is a way but it's yeah i think it's if there is it's still pretty not how you do it and that's right near i think we've discussed before sudan and egypt have this ridiculous border dispute well ridiculous i mean it's important to them obviously but it's like it has entertaining consequences which is that there was a like a miscommunication or a lack of clarity around what the border is. And so each of them, each of the countries uh, have a different definition of what the border is in between them. Mm. And there's, there's a bit of a squiggly overlap in between where the border is. And so there's kind of a triangle where both of them claim it's part of their country. And then there's kind of like a little notch that neither of them claim is part of their country. <laughs> And so it's yeah. just this kind of like area that nobody wants because to say it's part of their country would imply that the other part isn't part of their country and the other part is much more valuable. Yeah. So by the way, the, the, a lot of the jewelry and art that, that, that Italian guy stole from them is really beautiful. So definitely something worth, worth looking at, checking out. Pretty cool Do you stuff. have a sense of whether or not like, uh, obviously that, or if you've been to any of like of these museums in europe you'll see that there's was a ridiculous amount of you know removal of historical and cultural yeah. artifacts from countries that were being colonized um yeah. in the era of colonization and egypt and this and apparently sudan as well uh got it very badly is there yeah. any like movement or progress or anything towards repatriating any of that stuff only a tiny bit there there have been some things returned honestly mostly in between but you know different european countries have given stuff back that they like napoleon took you know this art and now it goes back to sure here. and france and germany as like a gesture towards yeah, one it, another exactly so there, there has been some returnal but mostly what you see is these these um museum directors saying we would absolutely never do this now <laughs> But we also absolutely are not going to undo what was done then, which I, I find personally pretty offensive. Do they come up with like some excuse to morally justify not giving it back? I don't think so. I think they just started just like, well, you know, we would never do it again now. It was done in a different era, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think they, they the way that they justify it to themselves, which I think is often equally offensive, is to say, oh, well, it's better, it's safer here. We would take better care of it than you would. Yeah, we're going to take better care of it, where it's less likely to be involved in any kind of conflict, blah, 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 especially if it's a place, you know, like in the Middle East with with ISIS, where they were actually going around well, destroying, I mean, destroying things. You can see, okay, that's kind of, but no one is trying to send art back to Syria right now. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, you, it, it, it's, the, it's a paternalism to, to say that, you know, countries cannot take care of their own stuff 
And, and it's, it's an infantilism and it's I honestly pretty, like I said, pretty offensive to say like, oh, you know, you can't have back, you know, all of this, especially Egypt, like all this stuff we took from the, these tombs, Egypt is a, you know, stable country. Like they should have their stuff back. You know what I mean? It just, it, 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 there's not really any justification for keeping things that were stolen. You can imagine so, them coming up with like to further try to like at least pretend they're being reasonable to come up with some list of rules where they've like intentionally designed it so that they won't fulfill the rules. But like, oh, if you can satisfy these criteria, like, you know, be in a country that is stable and have this much security for them and have it be temperature controlled or whatever, you know, yeah. like, I feel like that's yeah. literally the least they could do is pretend yeah. that they, you, they would give it back, but then set some really high bar. Yeah. I would say that that would also be wrong because at the end of the day, it's, you know, you're deciding that, like, do I think it's awful if if cultural artifacts get destroyed? Yes. But at the same time, why is it the British Museum's decision whether or not this stuff should be destroyed or not? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, it, it's it's just, like, there's layers to this. Because it's just, like, if, you know, all of these, these stolen colonial goods, you know, India and stuff like that. First of all, you're assuming that they won't be able to take care of it, which is wrong. Secondly... Like, like maybe the most famous one, the Rosetta Stone, right? Yeah. You know, but, but secondly, like you're also assuming that it's up to you to decide how it should be safeguarded, how it should be, you know, treated, what it should matter for all these kinds of things. So, and you know, the, the, the British museum believes that uh, here's a quote for them about this, where they say in a statement to middle East eye, the British museum said, it believes there's a value in sharing these collections as widely as possible so they can be seen by as large a public as possible so they're basically saying well we can't give it back to you because we have the resources to tour the world with the stuff sometimes well but also how many iraqis and egyptians can even go to london yeah. to see this stuff oh they're saying <laughs> oh more people come to london you know because we have a bunch of stolen stuff that you can come visit yeah so, exactly <laughs> it's better for the stolen stuff to be here. it's so <laughs> offensive not to mention the fact that the british museum apparently has eight million things and that only one percent of them are on display mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so like you know and they have they have given back some stuff i don't want to imply that they've given back nothing but uh, this, in fact, the same article is saying that they returned its, returned some Benin bronzes to Nigeria. And that's great. But like, it's just y- the fact that you built a business, essentially, even if it's a nonprofit business based on plundered stuff from other countries, does not, you know, it, it does it's not, not luck. justify. Yeah, it doesn't justify what you're doing. It's just completely, completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so if you ever want to, you know, go see some really cool pyramids, Sudan. Yeah. Good place to go check them out. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, I, I have not vetted that statement in terms of like the logistical safety of traveling to Sudan, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know what, I mean, you know, check travel advisories, but yeah, it, I mean, check that people are checking travel advisories to come to my country right now. So, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not to be, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but Sudan may, may or may not be more dangerous. I don't know. It depends where you are in America. Yeah. It's um, very, very true. Yeah. But that's a cool fact. Far more. Yeah. So, do you do we get a number of like pyramids? They have a guesstimate. It's two hundred and something. Nice. And uh, maybe three hundred. And Egypt has about one hundred and fifteen. Yeah. So, yeah, plentiful a lot of pyramids. Plentiful pyramids. That's that'd be a good name for like a plentiful prog rock band. Hmm. Segways. Okay. So, speaking of. Places that are far away. <laughs> By the way, just that while you're trying to come up with a segue, it, it looks like the, the 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 areas of Sudan that might be warned against traveling are not the areas where the pyramids are. Oh, okay. 
So, yeah. Good to know. So I have long had an obsession with animals that don't exist in, uh, in Canada or North America. Okay. I thought there was gonna be another situation where I did, I discovered where I learned that an animal does exist that I didn't think was real. Well, I don't know. Maybe that'll happen. We're going to, we're going to talk about a couple animals and if you didn't think they were real, then you'll find out about them. Okay. But I've always been kind of obsessed with them. And, uh, when I got to travel to Australia a few years ago, that was like a a very fun part of that. Um, but, and so I came across this and, and wanted to add it to the list because to me, it's fun to talk about, uh, and just kind of fun fact. So fun fact, the kiwi bird is larger than a platypus that okay okay which i was very surprised to learn because in my mind like i had an idea of what how big a platypus was and i had an idea of how big a kiwi bird is so did did you was that surprising to you too yes so that and to be to be fair a kiwi bird is not that much larger than a platypus it's not like it's way way bigger but it is bigger than a platypus on on uh average so what is your guess did you think your uh overestimated how big a platypus is or underestimated how big a kiwi bird is okay well i'll tell you that i hope that i underestimated how big a kiwi bird is but i'm guessing i overestimated how big a platypus is both are funny but a giant kiwi bird as big as what i think a platypus is would be funnier to me than just the fact that platypuses are really tiny and cute okay so uh your intuition is correct in that uh uh, the platypuses are actually, in fact, tiny and cute. Oh, that's so yeah. great. So I'm going to send you a, a picture, which I can put in the show notes uh, here. So there's a bit of scale for you. So a kiwi bird... Uh, so I'll go through these. Wait, hold on. The top one is a kiwi bird? So in this photo, which I'll put, I can put in the show art, uh, so yeah. if your thing supports that. Um, so the top photo is a kiwi bird with the pyramids being held in the pyramids in the background. The kiwi bird held in someone's arms and then a platypus uh, held in someone's arms. But the kiwi bird is... It's huge! This is the, uh, on the large end of kiwi birds. Okay. Uh, but uh, the brown kiwi, which is... Uh, I imagine kiwis to be like t- like uh, maybe big bigger than a, a like a chick like like a like yeah just, like a baby chick right yeah yeah like a little yeah. chick right yeah um, that's how i would have imagined them and too. so the brown kiwi which is the biggest and most common kiwi uh is almost two feet tall oh uh, and weighs five to seven pounds which is a lot for a bird right yeah that's like a pretty hefty sized bird yeah um, one website claimed that they can weigh up to 11 pounds which seemed implausible and wasn't checked out by other ones um, okay. but there de- can be a decent sized bird the little spotted kiwi, um, okay, that which should be smaller, small one, uh, is still well over a foot tall and weighs up to four pounds. So, wow. like, they're just bigger than I. I just imagine them as these tiny Big little things. Birds, yeah, but you don't normally see because they're like indeed both of these are like uh, vulnerable species. You don't often see them interacting with people. Like the priority is okay. to keep them in their wildlife or whatever. People don't have yeah. kiwis like in their home. Okay, you know? I'm going to now. No, well, yeah, I mean, no, I'll get one too because they're giant and I'm sure. <laughs> and so cute. They are both very cute animals. The On the flip side, the platypus, and I encountered this when I was in Australia when I was visiting a nature preserve of some kind and I went into this uh, area and there was a tank kind of like you see with penguins where they have a an enclosure and a habitat or whatever. And there's a whole bunch of platypi, they're platypuses. Platyp- platyp- Platy- I always want platy- to say platypi. They're not actually. Platypi? You're not is supposed to say platypi, platypi, but I want to say platypi. Oh. There's a bunch of platypi swimming around, and they're like the smaller than cats. 
They're like yeah. the size of a kitten almost. What the heck? Yeah. And so a big platypi, they do vary a fair amount. So a big platypi, right. big platypus is uh, almost as big as a cat, but like um, okay. on, typically they're, they're, uh, they're smaller. Small. Yeah. And so a uh, uh, platypus weighs like two to five pounds. Okay. Um, two, to, two to five pounds. Yeah. It's very light. Yeah. And they're like about a foot and a half long, which is, you know, Okay. Uh, not that much shorter than a kiwi is tall, but a platypus is like only length. It's like a tube <laughs> and it's yeah. like a foot and a half long. And they're, yeah. they're pretty small, cute little things. That's adorable. I thought of them as like the size of a beaver, right? Yeah, like, yeah, me too. Me too. I totally thought beaver is exactly the, the size I would have guessed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not even close. Not even close. And then kiwis are like Godzilla birds. They're like a, as big as a chicken. Yeah. There's a movie called The X from Outer Space. Okay. And it is like a like a cheap Godzilla knockoff. Okay. From 1967. But the monster is a platypus. But the mo- no, but the monster is kind of like a giant chicken. Okay. Like here I'll This does not will... sound very scary. Is this supposed no, to be scary? No, I'm going to show you a I'm going to show you a a picture. Just click 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 that up. The X from Outer Space. That is not even, this is not silly. This is like a man, it, it wasn't supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be scary, was it? <laughs> it was supposed to be scary, yes, really? it's a horror movie. This is like a made up, like, uh, pasted, like, uh, collage art <laughs> that like a high school student would make, or like a college student would make in the 80s or something. It's literally smiling, so, like I don't even understand. It's literally smiling. <laughs> it's so good. This is not, what was this, what was this monster called? The X, the X the from a, outer oh, space. The X, because they didn't have a name for it. Yeah, because they were so horrified by its chickeny, <laughs> chickeny. Oh, it's a ginormous, rampaging, beaked beast. When you said just... when you said a monster like a chicken, I definitely yeah. thought it would be more scary than this. Yeah, like honestly, it's not even chicken level scary. It kind of looks like a snorkel in some ways. I mean, it's it's not it's not scary at all. But it just made me think of the fact that the kiwi bird is huge yeah i mean it's bigger than this monster well for sure because yeah for sure it is but like that it's just like two i can't even really deal with how big that kiwi bird is and now i kind of want to see one in real life and not really like you know like when you're confronted with something that just does not seem real even mm-hmm. though it's there like i want to see the kiwi bird in in real life this is a very long beak yeah yeah it is yeah so i don't have like a whole bunch of in-depth things no, about like the ecosystem for... of how they generate yeah. oxygen or anything it's just like look at the cute little platypus and the giant kiwi like they generate oxygen from pee i mean yeah they're pretty advanced <laughs> i mean platypi <laughs> have evolved so many things i would not put a pro- put a pass platypi, them. like so that's the thing about australia because that's where you were right uh yeah the thing about australia that's so fascinating and i think we may have even talked about yeah kiwis obviously new zealand but i think we may have talked about this on the show before like the the fact that Australia broke off from yes. the rest of the continents and traveled out the sea and that it broke off with no predators for all of these marsupials. And so Australia has all of this wildlife that existed in the rest of the world too and was just made extinct. Yeah, by the by the like more competitive placental yeah, because mammals that came along. Especially came like from. the koala bears are like all bad at keeping themselves alive. Right? Oh, like almost all the marsupials in Australia compared to like modern predatorial uh mammals are yeah. just like suck at life. Like they're basically yeah. just round snacks. Like you see yeah, them, yeah, yeah. like you see like a wombat and you're like, I would eat that. If I was a like a tiger or a bear yeah. or something, like, I would be like that looks meal. delicious. 
it's just spherical. And so they don't exist anywhere else. But in Australia, they're just like, cool, I guess we're chilling. Yeah. It's so wonderful to me that they exist. Yeah, it just makes me happy. Because like, we, we wouldn't have known. Yeah, it makes me really happy. We would not have known. Thank <laughs> you.